I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Thanks to Freshly for supporting Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Freshly has delicious, fresh, healthy meals ready to heat and enjoy in just three minutes. Stop stressing about dinner. Right now, Freshly is offering our listeners $125 off your first five orders when you go to Freshly.com slash worm. And thank you to Dame for supporting Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Get 10% off your first order at dameproducts.com when you use the promo code WORM. Claire, what else do we have to get off our chests? Not much. <laughs> you and I, not much. Okay, here's the logo. Is it because we have small chests? Yes. So is that cross to make a joke about? No, I thought it was nice. This is a safe I place. I thought it was saucy. This is a meeting of the itty bitty titty community. Were you a part of that as a child? Yes. <laughs> or did you have huge bazungas as a kid that you grew <laughs> that out shrunk of? shrunk down. <laughs> you know, people like grow into their features. We grew into our breasts and they actually became quite small. <laughs> Can I tell you, did I ever tell you about that poem that my friend's mom taught us? I don't think we have time for it, but sure. Okay. Well, my friend's mom taught us this poem that she did when she was younger and she wanted to get big boobs and she had bazongas okay. so we were like oh well this must work so we would say it too and then my friend got bazongas and i didn't and i was what was the poem we must we must we must okay we i must. knew it was gonna be that that's a judy bloom book that's a book by judy bloom no she wrote it it's a poem <laughs> Okay. Anyway, we are Celebrity Memoir Book Club. We are dumb as hell and we're reading books for you. So proceed at your own caution. I'm not even going to go further. If you get mad at us for being stupid and you disagree with us, that's your fault. You did not heed the warning. You have only yourself to blame. Stop listening if you want smarter people. And if you wish to listen to a podcast with different voices speaking, Listen to a different podcast with different voices speaking. Our voices are glued to our being. It is but a sculpture shoved into me, <laughs> carved into my being. And as someone who edits this podcast, I can attest that our voices will get worse in the hour and a half that we speak. We don't have any vocal strength. <laughs> For two talkers, somehow we have like the worst <laughs> technique. Also, if you like us, obviously five-star reviews. We'll read them at the end. Also, LA, we're coming tonight. Literally, this is the last warning you'll get. And then yeah. it is a warning like a hurricane. <laughs> yes, it is a glaring tornado drill warning. But don't go into the hallway and put your hands on your neck. Instead, proceed to the Virgil's website and buy a ticket or just come to the show tonight. There will be tickets at the door. Doors at 7. The show starts at 8. And we're really excited to see you there. Uh, we're doing a Lena Dunham article and then also maybe a Lana Del Rey poem as a bonus, depending on time. I'm so excited to see you guys. I love you so much. Okay. Ashley, before we get into this week's memoirist, if sure. you were a celebrity, what would last week's memoir be called? It would be called Board the Windows because a hurricane is coming. No, and we just <laughs> use that metaphor for ourselves. We can't mix oh, metaphors. Oh, we just call ourselves a hurricane. Okay. It would be called... Make sure your chicest raincoat is packed because, baby, there is going to be a storm. And I... That's... that's Okay, keep going. Want to be prepared for it. This is the title of your chapter? That's a chapter title? What are you, Panic at the Disco? <laughs> okay, the chapter would be called... <laughs> Hold on to your hats, baby, because your fortitude is about to be tested. Okay. 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 So here's the thing. Every single person I've ever known and loved is experiencing a major life moment in the next one and a half calendar year. Mm -hmm. I cannot truly think of a single person who is not getting engaged, getting married, having a baby, doing just like all of these major life things. And I 
am really happy with my life right now. I feel like I personally chose my career. I haven't, I mean, I've been dating obviously as like a hobby. I would not say that I've made dating a true priority in any way at any point in my entire life. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that like sometimes I'm like, man, I'm like kind of trying to date right now. Why isn't it working out? But I think that if I like really looked at it, it's not been something I've worked at at all. Even when I say I'm going to, I really don't. And so I think that I've put my career first and it's going really well. So if you look at it as like after graduating high school, some people went on the like life milestones track and some people went on the careers track. We're both accomplishing what we want to accomplish at the same time. And that is good. But I do think at various events coming up, I'm going to have to stand by that thought process very hard to a lot of people because it will be questioned incessantly. And so I really do just have to like weather the storm and remind everyone that I'm happy and doing well and excited for them and excited for me and everybody's doing good. And it's going to come out along the lines of I'm happy. (laughs) I am. But I am. You could say to them, why would I have one husband when I could have one million worms? (laughs) Who I love. Why would I want to come home to a man in a bed when I could come home to a house full of worms? (laughs) Perfect, beautiful worms. That's a very good question. And I doubt they'll have an answer. (laughs) I don't think they will. (laughs) So that's where I'm at right now. It's like I am happy and I am excited, but I am honestly just like bracing myself to have all of my thoughts and feelings questioned consistently. So I hope it doesn't happen. I know it will. Let's go on. Let's go on, baby. Claire? Yes. What would you call your memoir chapter if it was last week (laughs) totally I would call it you're so happy Claire that's what I just said (laughs) mine's different though mine's like well I guess it's actually the same but for different reasons (laughs) I'm I'm like so excited we're about to go to LA we're about to go to Chicago I cannot wait to like meet you guys and do these live shows this is the dream and I'm so excited to do it I have been struggling in my personal emotional life and I'm trying to be like there's so much good. You're so yeah. you're so happy. Sometimes you have to look at yourself in the mirror and go, you're so happy. Everything is good. You're so happy. Stop crying. Because <laughs> it is. Like, everything is so good. So stop crying. <laughs> Same but different. Same but different. Same but different. Okay. Well, should we get into the book? You yeah. say, let's go, girls. Okay. Let's go, girls. <laughs> You guys, this week we are reading Shania Twain's New York Times bestseller from now on. And if you are one of the purchasers of this bestseller, write in. Let me know if you finished the book, because let me tell you, it's a slog. (laughs) I have never slogged harder. I think at page 28, I texted Ashley. I was like, I don't know if I can go on. There's over 400 pages and like a 20 page index. Yeah, a full index. It is a long book. It's a beautiful story. And boy, does she have a story. But the way she writes it. I will say, I think she wrote this herself. And I bet she edited it herself. I don't think any. That's not true. You don't. She wrote it herself and no one edited it. You don't think she did a a proofread? Nope. (laughs) It was tough. We have to kind of up top warn you guys about trigger warning our own bad behavior. This comes in a long line of really sad books. Yeah. True. I mean, give me a girl boss. These women have struggled and it has been a lot. But unlike a Molly Shannon, a Viola Davis, Shania Twain maybe does not know how to tell this story. She gets 
as some would say, lost in the sauce. Every memory is equally important. And the problem with life is that's not true. I'll just tell you up front. There's a lot of abuse, poverty, assault, death. And the weight that these things are given compared to a horse she liked, (laughs) a pie she remembers, her elementary school principal teacher's name. It's tough. And I think... As we go through this book, I just like want to get it out there. Me and Ashley are both in awe of Shania Twain. I have been going down the Shania Twain. I love her. Listening to all of her songs. Bangers. Absolute bangers. Someone who came from truly nothing and proved everyone wrong and was so successful. More successful than I'll ever be. More beautiful. More forgiving. More loving. More talented. Has overcome more in her life than anyone ever should. That being said, the book itself is... Not good. I will say this is a we read the book so you don't have to. Her story is... It's not better told by her. Awe-inspiring. But the book itself is not. You would be much better off hearing this from us. And I will say just everything about her, the way that she like united every fucking woman in the world with man, I feel like a woman. I'm just like, God, that song will stand the test of time as the most important. Combing my hair, doing a dare. That is when I feel like a woman. (laughs) I just think that like from every walk of life that gets the bitches going. I mean, any man of mine better be proud of me. Even if I'm ugly, he still better love me. If we could all live by that mantra, I think there'd be not a lot of childhoods like Shania Twain's. I'll tell you that. So we are going to proceed. We are proceeding with love, with sympathy, with compassion. And if we LOL at something inappropriate, please don't cancel us. It's just because it is. We're not laughing at trauma we don't think trauma is funny we are laughing this book is truly a series of unfortunate events that just keep fucking coming and you kind of can't believe it and they don't really add up to it like i don't know something we'll get more into it but something is really missing from this book there that is makes no it a narrative grand crescendo of like and there i was standing to a million screaming adoring fans thinking about how far i've come it just kind of like ends Yeah, spoiler alert, Shania Twain becomes very famous. Sorry if that ruins it for you. It's really interesting, written in a way that is not really interesting. But there is something just intrinsically missing from this book. I don't know if it's self-reflection. I don't know if it's character development. I don't know if it is like a sense of a narrative arc. Yeah. But it's missing. Okay, here we go. Shania Twain. Eileen Regina Edwards was born August 28th, 1965. Did you know that her name was Eileen? Not only did I not know that, but by the end of the book, I was surprised to hear that even her friends and family still call her Eileen. That Shania Twain is fully a stage name. Yeah, she's Eileen. Eileen Twain, they said, just didn't have the hit it needed. And I was like, true. It really does not... Her brother's name is Mark Twain. Okay, anyway, so to give you guys a quick update on her mom. Her mom is named Sharon. At 18 years old, Sharon fell in love and got engaged. She was expecting her first child with her fiancé, Gilbert, but he was killed in a car accident shortly before my older sister, Jill, was born. The following year, 1964, my mother met and married my biological father, Clarence Edwards. I was their first child, followed two years later by my little sister, Carrie Ann. My mother and Clarence divorced when I was still a toddler, so when Sharon was 22. When Shania was four, her mom met Jerry Twain, who raised her as his own fully they got married had another baby named mark and then a year after mark was born they adopted jerry's nephew daryl when daryl as an infant his mother committed suicide right so it was the three older sisters the oldest sister jill from her first husband yes and then 
Carrie Ann and Eileen from her next husband and then Jerry. And between Eileen's father and when the mom met Jerry, they lived with the grandma Eileen for a couple of years. I'm going to go ahead and an executive decide that we only call her Shania. Okay, good. So <laughs> Shania, Carrie Ann and Jill and the mother all lived with their grandma Eileen for a couple of years in the middle, which Shania remembers as the happiest years of her childhood. So for those at home keeping score at this point, I think Sharon is 25, a widow on her third husband, raising five children in poverty. They live with the grandmother for a while, but at some point move out. And when Jerry and Sharon get married, Jerry says that she cannot have contact with Clarence the ex because he is an extremely jealous person. So I don't think Shania ever for the rest of her life ever has contact with her biological father. She doesn't think of him that way. So this took me a minute because she keeps on saying my father. When she says my father, she is only ever referring to Jerry Twain. Yeah. And she says he raised her like his own she was his own like she knew him her whole adult life and she said because I think her father was a pretty absentee father who left before she was really forming memories she has no memories of her dad she saw a photo of him one time and that's all she knows she says I didn't miss someone I didn't know this book also just for the record I didn't say it earlier but it came out in 2011 when she was 46 it also starts off with an intro where she just really clarifies that she is telling her story and her side of the story and she says that there are parts that she leaves out for respect of other people but she wants to get her story out there as wholly as possible. I think there are moments where those gaps are quite obvious. So we're going to talk about that. Okay. So right away, she had a very tumultuous childhood with a lot of abuse and hunger. She said in a small house where emotions were running high, few secrets are hidden from little ears. Typically my mother would nag and my father would ignore her at first as the tension mounted. So did the volume of their voices, then the verbal insults until one of them would nudge or slap the other from there. It wouldn't take long for things to escalate into a full scale physical fight. She says, my sisters and I usually cowered behind a closed door or in a side room where we wouldn't see what was happening only here when the violence broke out. But unfortunately I recall this particular fight in our new home with plain visual detail. My mother was a featherweight and so easy to push around. Jerry had her on the bathroom floor by the toilet, grabbing her hair, he slammed her head against the side of the basin, knocking her out cold. I could see Jerry repeatedly plunge my mother's head into the toilet bowl and pull it out again. I remember wondering, why is he trying to drown her when she's already dead? I wanted to scream, stop, you already killed her. I wanted to stop him, but I was too afraid. My mother was limp and lifeless. I cried and felt completely humiliated to see her so helpless, drenched with the water from the toilet and a wet piece of toilet paper dangling from her chin. The neighbors call the police and the police come and escort Jerry out we were traumatized and the only person there to help us cope with the aftermath of the horrific events of that night was my beaten broken mother and then it does seem like Jerry just comes back and they resume Mm -hmm. normalcy it seems like for the most part police are called often but very rarely even escort him out by the time they get there everybody comes down pretends nothing was happening her mom will be like nothing was going on it was just a fight but it's fine now and she even says and this is something we heard a lot about in Viola's book that she was always afraid of calling the police because she knew that if he went to jail, things would be worse for them. Yeah. So as soon as her mom marries Jerry, things become abusive immediately. But she also maintains this awe and respect for him because he raised all the children as his own. Yes. It's a very complicated relationship. We see this all the time. People are very forgiving of their fathers. I mean, she says constantly in this book, I was afraid he was going to kill her. Like it was to her just a given that eventually her parents would die and it would be because one of them would kill the other. She is constantly having dreams and visions of her mom being killed by her father that 
lined up with real life events. She describes a lot of dreams in very vivid detail and sometimes it's kind of hard to tell what's a dream and what's not. I mean, the dream's going for pages. I want to step in and I feel like to hear us laughing in the beginning and then to hear that. I mean, this book has such horrific details and like what she went through, no child should have to go through. But then she'll write a paragraph like this. Nothing got edited out. And I feel like that's why it's so hard to read. And I'm just going to read this one example of a paragraph that she puts on the very next page after describing this horrific spite. And then we'll never come back to the bad writing parts again. But I feel like it needs to be known like what this book is like. Yes. In the summer of 1971, around the time of my sixth birthday, we left the Norman Street address for a small rental home in Bannerman Street on the side of Timmins. In September, I began the first grade Matagami Public School, where the principal's name was Mrs. Partridge. I thought that she was maybe related to the singing family on the TV's The Partridge Family. The world was still very small to me at the age of six, so it made perfect sense. Although I did question why my Mrs. Partridge lived in Timmins, Ontario, while the Mrs. Partridge, played by Shirley Jones, lived in a fictional small town in Northern California. It was hard at such an age to consider that people with the same last name were not necessarily related. I thought the only twin that existed in the world for example were us and that anyone with the name twain would be our relatives the only other use of the word partridge i'd ever heard of at six years old was what i knew about a wild medium-sized pheasant hunted by locals in the fall i was having trouble connecting all these long distance dots although the united states was our next door neighbor to me it seemed worlds away a country you read about in stories and saw on tv and movies i had trouble determining the differences between what was real and only on tv mrs partridge never comes up again that whole story about the word partridge and how it rings a couple of bells for her. <laughs> and so you're just reading this. And so now I'm like, but you know, when you read and an entire descriptive paragraph is dedicated to Mrs. Partridge, the principal, you're just like, got it, Mrs. Partridge. She's going to be important. Never comes She's up not. again. And the idea that she had to be like, I also know this other definition of the word partridge. You're just like, yeah, at six, you don't know a lot. <laughs> That's not a Shania thing. <laughs> That's a people thing. But also just like the way she fills in these details constantly. The things that she chooses to describe, like we said at the beginning, with equal weight to these deeply traumatic incidents, it does make it hard to read. It's the cadence. It's an odd book to read. So it puts you in an odd mood. And that's why we got silly. I mean, Ashley was laughing about this part where she talks about how far they had to walk along the highway to get to school, her and her young sisters. And it felt so far. And she goes on and on about how far it was. And then as an adult, she goes back and tries it again. And she's like, you know, sometimes when you're a little kid, things seem farther. But then you went back as an adult. And it was just as far as we thought. And it was actually hard. And she just goes on and on and on. And I was like, I guess what this is, is a woman who, one, she might be like a bit dissociative. I do think that it's very out of body for her, what she experienced. I think she's very cut off from her emotions. And then two, I feel like she's somebody who maybe doesn't trust her own memories and the details she feels she has to put down to justify the horrors that she saw. Yeah, there is like a lot of caveating of certain experiences like this happened, but he was so nice to us the next day or but this happened, but that. But my mom should have acknowledged her own antagonism in the situation I see now as a mother that when a seven-year-old throws up, it's actually really frustrating. There is so much caveating that I wonder if she has to like reground herself in these memories to be like, I know you're annoyed by this. I have to explain to you the whole story so that you understand the weight of it. Yeah. And you're like, no, I, I would have believed the weight of it. She's like, here's everything I have. Can I say it also does seem like other people in her adult life treated her with that like dismissiveness of these things aren't that important. Because later she talks about her ex-husband when she was talking about rationing milk yeah. and how he like thought that that was annoying. I also think maybe like when you're raised to keep everything a secret and she says that a couple of times that they never told other people that they're going through. She doesn't even know if her grandmother realized what they were going through. She knew better than to ever ask for help or anything. And that is the problem that I think she has to this day is she's very guarded. 
I wonder if it's like she truly doesn't know what's important because she's been keeping it all in for all these years and she doesn't know like yeah. how bad it really was because she never let herself feel it. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, and again, not to be cruel, not great for a book to not know what's important and what's not. <laughs> not great. Even from a young age, she was very musical. She started playing maracas in the threes in pre-K. She found great solace in music. It really opened up her heart in this way. She said, I discovered an internal instrument and was learning how to play it. I was finding my voice. She started singing at age three and pretty immediately people were like, she has a good voice. She said she would love to sing the harmony. She didn't ever want to be the lead vocalist. She would always sing backup because she liked to hear the harmonies. And she said, although my taste in music was broad from the beginning, my own personal style continued to develop more in the vein of acoustic singer-songwriter. Something in this book that she really wants to make clear is that she is a singer-songwriter. Not a recording artist. She's been making her music from the beginning and that she understands music theory and she loves creating music and she loves writing music. So growing up, I think until she's about six years old, their grandmother lives with them and she loves her grandmother. Her grandmother is her namesake. But I think when she's about six, her grandmother dies and that sends her mom into the beginning of like a catatonic depression. Throughout her childhood, her mom is in and out of these really deep depressions. Their dad does not tolerate that well and it leads to more abuse she's talking about her sister and she says we both remember our father as a kind thoughtful man and because the contrast between his two sides was complicated for us small children to comprehend we tended to hold on to the sunny side rather than the darker side and I think that paints a lot of this book in a clearer light the way that she will start and end every story with like a nice thing he did too yeah she really clings to the good parts of him it's just like story after story of these horrible memories from childhood she remembers the first time she ever threw up she never threw up she says until she was about seven and she got the flu she pukes on her mom in the middle of the night and her mom says i can't believe what a mess you made she scolded furiously now i have to clean all this up it's the middle of the night for christ's sake and then she says looking back on it now and being a mother myself i understand her lack of patience that night she had three older kids to wake up for in a few hours and now in the middle of the night i'd given her a big mess to clean i wish i'd had the maturity then to comfort her and tell her i understood but being seven years old i didn't understand how could i the idea that adults can live challenging lives full of struggles and suffering is beyond a child's comprehension. All I knew was that her behavior upset me, making me feel worse than I already did. It makes me feel so sad that her takeaway from this event is that she should have been more understanding. Yeah, she's like, I wasn't compassionate enough. And I have compassion for myself that at seven, I couldn't have the compassion I needed. And then she's like, no, that's not you it. You were a child and you were sick. It's okay that your mom was stressed out, but it's not your fault. Like I will say, I think sometimes people are hard on their parents. Sometimes people go easy on their parents. I will say as a kid, you don't owe an apology to a parent for being sick. <laughs> so they move around a ton. I mean, we're not going to get into every horrible memory. I'd say around page 200, she finally turns like 20. Yeah, there's a lot of detail. I think every memory she has is in this book, honestly. So she talks about her earliest memories of sexual assault. She says that she had a friend's parent expose himself to her. She had an older neighbor who tried... Like a grandpa neighbor. ...try to molest her, and she is able to run away, but she talks about that feeling of do I defy an adult's authority because I don't feel safe in this situation? It's very scary. But also that she's like, I knew I couldn't tell my mom because my mom's response would have been to yell at me for being somewhere I shouldn't have been. Yeah. Like it was my fault for going into the old man's house when he asked me to. So most of her childhood is like moving around from basements, sharing houses with family, living in like someone's back room. I think something interesting that's consistent throughout is that she always shares a bed with her sister, Carrie, who she shares a biological father with, but her older sister, Jill, always gets her own bed. Yeah, there's a lot of food insecurity, housing insecurity, resources. I mean, they're living in northern Canada without proper winter gear. And at one point, she justifies it being like, well, when you're a teenager, 
it's like the cool thing to do to dress not warm enough for the weather. But she didn't have the option to dress warm enough for the weather. And she's walking an hour to and from school. And she says part of it was that they couldn't afford something new. But that part of it was that they refused to go to the Salvation Army because they were too proud to buy something used. So there Her- is this like other part of it that's like they were suffering so much. But why? So Jerry was actually a member of the indigenous peoples of Canada and worked on a reservation, but refused to take any sort of government handout. And she would always say, why can't we live on a reservation with our grandparents and with our cousins? It seems like they have pretty decent lives. And the dad was always like, no, no handouts. We're not doing that. He refused because he felt that by agreeing to live under the government's thumb, you were sacrificing your freedom, which I respect that outlook on it. I do think when you have five children who don't have enough to eat, it's hard to respect that outlook as much. I think things would be okay for a while and then they would fall behind on rent, get evicted and have to start out from the bottom. And so it really was like up and down. And there was always kind of a hope that things were going to turn around. It seems like he was always trying to get a better paying job. And it, it does seem like they never had enough food. She yeah. talks about seeing someone leave milk behind in a bowl of cereal and being like, I can't believe they're just wasting milk like that. She is somebody who I do not think has been to therapy But has worked very hard to come to terms with it. Yes. But so she says, certainly my mother and my father went through periods where they were aloof and even negligent. Yet I can't say that I didn't feel loved. I just accepted the fact that they weren't always capable of being there for me to the extent that I wish they could be. They didn't choose to be that way. Circumstances, mainly poverty, prevented them from being the ideal parents that in their hearts they probably wanted to be. I honestly don't believe that I'm making excuses for them, although I can see how some may think that. Life isn't like a TV series. There is no perfect parents. I do realize, however, growing up the way that we did, we probably saw our parents' shortcomings earlier than perhaps other kids do. I mean, she tells stories about, like, when her mom was in these horrible depressions, she would get her out of bed before Jerry would come home because she knew if Jerry got home and saw that she was still in bed, he would, like, beat her. And sometimes he would beat the kids. And so she would have to, like, get her up and, like, get her dressed and try to, like, make it look like she had been awake all day. And she talks about how her and Jill would have to take the little boys to their doctor's and dentist appointments. She's like, yeah, we were expected to put on our own bandages. And, yeah, we were expected to clean up everything ourselves. But, you know, we were loved. And they always tucked us in. That's one thing she comes back to is her dad would always tuck them in at night. But they were just hugely neglected every other time of day. She gets really into horses. She has a friend who has horses. And so she spends all of her free time at the horse stables learning how to care for the horses. And it becomes a huge part of her life. Also, music is a huge part of her life this whole time. And she says her mom really encouraged her singing and would often spend money that they just did not have on music lessons. Like her mom always prioritized their musical ability. And she says, even though they didn't pay a lot of attention to the kids, she said, instead, I felt like singing was really the only thing that got my parents' attention. And when we say that there's a lot missing in this book... I think the fact that there's sentences like this that then aren't ever explored, explored or called upon when she's rising to like pop stardom. There never seems to be a connection internally to her in like how successful she became and how important her career was to her mom. They really tried to make her a child star, her mom. So whenever she would be out of these depressive states, she would be channeling all of her energy into Shania's music career. So she would get her these gigs in bars and at these supper clubs kind of Mm -hmm. and they even got her on a local news thing in Toronto or like a local television program I guess a national television program right yeah but it's local to Canada local to Canada (laughs) we didn't have it here listen my boyfriend's family is from Canada you can't talk about it like that it's I always forget that it's like big it's a whole country you have to treat it as such okay 
So it was like local to the nation (laughs) of Canada. So they just put her on a train by herself to get to Toronto. And there was going to be a chaperone at the Toronto train station to pick her up. But her parents had put her on the wrong train. So when she's giving her ticket to the ticket guy, he's like, you are fully on the wrong train. It's going the other way to British Columbia. And she's like, well, I can't go there. I have to be on TV in the morning. And he's like, "Okay, let me make a call. He radios another train that is going to Toronto because it's running parallel for a bit, but in the opposite direction. And so he's like, "Okay, we're going to stop the train. You hop off, stand in this field. Another train will pick you up and get you to Toronto. So she's just standing in a field alone with her guitar. Was she 11? And a train comes by, does not stop. And she's like, well, I guess I'm going to have to hitchhike. She fully is like, I guess I'll have to walk to Toronto. (laughs) 10 hours by train that she's been going one hour in the wrong direction. And then a train comes by. Another train stops. A conductor leans out the window and goes, are you that little girl trying to get to Toronto? And she's like, I sure am. And they pick her up and she goes. And I'm just like, what is this? The fucking, what's that Christmas train movie? Polar Express. (laughs) What is this? The Polar Express? (laughs) Zing. (laughs) I mean, they were not well taken care of as kids. Oh, gosh. This is my last thing about how horrible the abuse was. I mean, we could go on truly for two hours because this book is so long and there's so many moments of it. But I do think that this is an interesting parallel in her feelings and her mom's feelings. So she talks about how her biological father had been very abusive to her mom as well. And she tells this story about one time her grandmother goes outside and sees this woman who's been all beaten up and she takes her to the hospital, like out of the goodness of her heart. And at the hospital, she finds out it was her daughter and like she was unrecognizable. She had been so badly beaten. And she's talking about this man, Clarence, her biological father. And Shania is saying, I personally wish him peace as I now have peace and understanding that those early years were turbulent for reasons I don't feel entitled to judge. And I'm just like, I don't know, man. I think you could be a bit judgmental about someone doing that to your mom but then on the next page she goes when my mother spoke of Clarence my biological father she never sounded bitter or hateful even when describing the violence between them we just rubbed each other the wrong way she'd say so I think this is something that you hit the nail on the head on earlier we were talking there are a lot of people who have treated her terribly that deserve like if she were to hate them she would have every right to it's not like oh a boy stood me up at prom and now I fucking hate that bitch yeah it's one of those things where I'm like that you can forgive but if she hated everyone in her life who had done something horrible to her she would have nobody left (laughs) that's a lot of hate to bear so I think that she's chosen this route of seeing the best in everything finding forgiveness in her heart for everyone and I don't think it's the way most people function but I think it's the way that she makes it through the day and I also think it's how she survived her childhood Mm -hmm. I do think if she went to therapy or like talk to somebody or like looked at these memories and addressed them she would be able to have healthy relationships now because I think she brings that mentality of forgiveness at all costs to situations that don't deserve it I mean she's a successful beautiful strong adult she doesn't need to be treated badly by the people she chooses to be in her life like you can't choose your parents but I do want to give this line because this is like very indicative of Shania and I don't know if maybe it's because she wrote this book and she has been so famous she kind of can't imagine that you don't know her story but so after sharing the story about her biological father. She goes, given my age, I don't know that she should have been so graphic with me in describing the violence, but then if she had waited until I'd reached a more appropriate age, perhaps the past would have died with her in that car accident. And then she just moves on. And I'm just like, what? What car (laughs) car accident? (laughs) She's dead now. And so that's the first you hear of it in this whole book. Yeah. 
I don't think that that's on purpose. I don't think that. I don't actually even think that she assumes you know everything about her. I just think that she gets lost in what part of the story she's told. And she like can't remember what you know and what you don't know. I was saying to Ashley, it reminds me of like when you're at Thanksgiving and you're talking to an older relative and they're like, well, you know, when your dad was adopted and you're like, what? Dad's <laughs> adopted? Like, like when people just like drop these insane pieces of family history on you that was they, a like, secret. You know. <laughs> and you're like, no, I think people were specifically keeping that out of my knowledge. Anyway, so back to music. She says that she first started writing songs at age 10. She kind of takes you through the history of some of her early songs. And this is when her cousin Kenny comes to live with them. Or it's her dad's cousin who is a teenager. He comes to live with them and he's very cool. He teaches her a lot about music. Then Kenny and her older sister Jill, who is 14, leave. Together. Together. My interpretation is that they left romantically. But it is she does not explain the circumstances in which they left together. She just says that her parents were very upset that at 14 years old, Jill was choosing to leave the house. And then Jill just never comes back. Yeah. We hear of Jill one other time. But for the rest of her life, Shania is the de facto adult. And she's like, it became really hard because now I was 12 or 13. And she's like, not only was I becoming a teenager who didn't want to hang out with my family and take care of my little brothers, but now all of a sudden I was the only adult in the house. And you're like, huh. oh, my God, Shania. Kenny has sort of introduced her to new music and then dipped with Jill. Her music interest is growing. Her ability to express herself through music is growing. Her mom's interest in her music career is growing and lifts her out of one of these depressive states. They get her some classes at the Royal Conservatory of Music and they drive 10 hours each way to take her to these voice lessons. Yeah, that he's gifting them for free. Yeah. She says, my mother acted as if she was addicted to my career. She was certainly aware of the consequences of angering my father and the inevitable cutoff of our phone service, but she still wasn't able to resist anything to keep my career going, as if her life depended on it. I believe that she did, in fact, live for my music during these times when she felt most defeated by life, on the days when the only reason to get out of bed was to get on the phone to find me places to sing. She says, I had the feeling I was singing for my mother's life more than my own. It was her happiness, her dream that I was trying to fulfill. And she says that, had this not been such a thing, she might have become an architect. I knew that my job was to listen and to comfort her. That's about her mother. All I know is that I felt alone with her, with her pain, and that she needed me to help make her feel better. That's not her job. And I do think that that's like the missing piece of this book. This book feels like such an overshare and it's because she's never opened up before in her life. And so it's just like this deluge of everything she's ever held in in her life. And that is because she takes it very seriously that you should never burden somebody with your emotions because her entire childhood, she was like burdened with her moms. But you'll see later, like she doesn't feel comfortable opening up to literally anybody. So then when she's 12, her parents get her drunk. She asks if she can try some whiskey and they were like, sure. And she gets fucked up. She's like, they were teaching me a lesson not to let yourself get out of control with alcohol. I think that it was because of that moment that I never drank too much as a teenager. And it's just like, that is a positive way to look at it. I don't know. This was a really dangerous situation. <laughs> Sometimes lying in bed at night, I'd say out loud, I hate my life. I'd speak to time very deliberately, asking it to please pass as quickly as possible. So all this could just be over with and behind me. She is just ready to get up and leave. She says, my mother pushed everything to the limit in order to keep me developing musically. The more time, effort and finances she devoted to my career, the greater the strain between her and my father. My mother was convinced that music was my destiny and I was too young to argue. 
But meanwhile, Shania claims that I wanted to write songs and sing them to myself and around the campfire with my friends and family. The dream was not to be the star. The star would perform my songs and I would sing background vocals. This was my genuine childhood dream to be behind the scenes, which was clearly where I felt more comfortable, creative and happy. Yeah, she also mentions that she had horrible stage fright. She was always terrified she was going to pee herself. And then she says... I declared 1978, the year I turned 13, the worst year of my life. At night before I went to sleep, I would tell myself, you will never have another year as miserable as this one. From here, things will get better. They had to because they sure couldn't have gotten any worse. And then she goes, from my adolescent point of view. I don't know. From any human. It was human, a really bad year. Your sister, older sister's gone with your cousin. <laughs> you are now raising four children. <laughs> You're 13 years old. Your mother is like depressed and cannot move. Your father is like unbelievably abusive her mom is in another extremely depressive state so she decides to take it upon herself and get them out so one day when her dad is gone sometimes he would carpool to work she puts all of the belongings that they can transport into a car she puts her brothers and her sister into the car she gets everything ready including her grandmother's clock that she knew her mom would never leave home without she puts a grandfather clock across (laughs) the legs of her siblings in the back seat and then she goes to wake up her mom and says, all right, you have to get in the car and drive right now. We're leaving. She can't drive yet. Her mom comes and she goes, I have to go back inside. I forgot something. I was so afraid that she'd lose her courage and wouldn't come back out. But much to my relief, she returned a couple of minutes later, climbed into the driver's seat, closed the door and off we drove to Toronto. I asked her what she forgot. And she said, oh, nothing. I just wanted to leave him a note. What did you say in it? I was worried she'd be absent minded enough to tell him where we were going. But no, I wrote him a note saying that I'm sorry things didn't work out. I was sad for her and still feel sad today that she felt so defeated at that moment that she was so discouraged and empty of hope. And yet she still had the compassion to apologize to the man who had abused her. I find calling that compassion an interesting choice of seeing it and not a brainwashing. And then she like reads the note. And she goes, man, mother, what do you mean you went back in there to write him a note of apology? Your four kids are sitting in the car feeling afraid, confused and insecure about what's next, waiting for you to take them somewhere away from this house so they can feel safe and secure for a change, be fed and protected. And you're moaning over the end of your relationship with the man who beats you. I didn't get it at that moment, but now I see it quite differently. She's like, she loved my father and appreciated his devotion to four out of five children that weren't his own. There were other things to love about Jerry too. And it's funny because at 14, she can see like, mom, he doesn't deserve our sympathies. But now she's like become her mom and she has almost too much empathy for the people who hurt her. Yeah. So that's kind of sad to watch her in that one paragraph become the thing that she sees was hurting her a lot. So we've read a lot of books of people in abusive relationships and we've read a lot of books from people who come from abusive situations Mm -hmm. and it does seem like a lot of times the people in abusive relationships think that they're bearing the brunt of the abuse and the the trauma and protecting their kids from it I think we've read this multiple times that they think that they're like kind of acting as a shield to the majority of the force Mm -hmm. meanwhile whenever we've read books from kids who come from abusive situations they're always the ones who pull the parents out like they're always the ones who say like you have to leave like the kids are always the ones screaming being like get out get out get out get out now and it does like make me so sad that that is still this ongoing narrative like the kids don't know when the kids are always the ones being like stop we're gonna do a patreon that will like make free to everybody Um, and we're gonna ask somebody who's like an expert in domestic violence of how you can help somebody if you know that's in a bad situation because I do feel like I don't know it's been a lot of really tough books in a row and I'm kind of like okay what can you do because if there is one consistent line is that the kids are always saying why didn't anybody help us and so we are going to get an expert who will be like these are steps you can take to help somebody if you think might be in trouble and that'll be on the Patreon and that will be like in front of, in the, front paywall. of the paywall yeah so that is I don't know if that can help anybody I, anyway 
So Shania at 13 gets her mom packed up. She gets the kids packed up and they move to Toronto and they spend a night in a shelter and then they're moved to a women's shelter, which is like a house that has about seven women in it. And they spend time there and she talks about how overwhelming it was for the women and the children alike to live in this situation where there were so many strict rules that were like for their own safety. Things like you can't answer the phone, you can't answer the door, you can't tell anybody where you are because if you as a child tell someone where you are and they find out who your roommates are, you could put everybody's lives at jeopardy. So they spend a few months in kind of a group home and then they get moved to a house where it's just them and one other woman and the two kids. And they have this kind of, I don't want to call it great year, but they have a year where they have food. They have three kinds of cereal. They're all going to school. She feels safe for the first time. And truly the only panic she has is like, when is it going to end? Yeah. She's petrified of the dad finding them. And she says she even made a mistake one time where she said they would call him from the payphone sometimes. And she said that they were near some busy street. And she was like, that's it. I've ruined it for all of us. And she was sleepwalking and having nightmares constantly that she was going to be the person who got them all killed, I guess. Her mom gets a job at this supper club. And then Shania sings there on the weekends for a little bit of extra money. She gets a boyfriend named Daniel that she like loves. She has nothing but good memories of all of her exes, actually. They break up, but she's like, it was always very loving. But then the summer I turned 16 in 1981, my mother went back to my father. She had become less dependent on me emotionally over the course of the period in Toronto, which had allowed me more time with Daniel. But my communication with my mother diminished and I wasn't included in her decision to move back with my father. So she refuses to go back. She wants to stay in Toronto with Daniel, but she has nowhere to live. I kind of thought that this was leading up to her moving in with Daniel, but his parents wouldn't take her. Nobody would take her. And she's like, I understand. I was just some teenage girl and loved the boy. Who would take me in? But I was like, I don't know. Someone, Someone with a heart should have taken you in. So she tries to stay. She's squatting in their old townhouse, which has no water, no electricity, electricity, no furniture. And she was like... You know what? It wasn't so bad because the carpet was pretty shaggy. So I could sleep there without a mattress. And she's like, and then some nights I would just sleep on the bus all night. Like that was no problem. That's sad. It just like never stops. It never gets easier for Shania. And then finally, after a few months, she just can't take it anymore. So she goes home to Timmins with her dad, with her mom. I guess at some point before they had left, things had gotten a bit more secure for them and they had bought a house because then while they were in Toronto the father as like an act of rebellion and heartbreak stopped paying the mortgage on the house so then when they went back to Timmins where they were from in Ontario the house had been repossessed their credit was ruined and now they were like worse off than they had started yeah they were living in the grandparents basement 11 people in a two-bedroom house she was sleeping in like where you would store root vegetables so she gets through the rest of her high school years just as fast as she can and it seems like her parents fully work their way into like solidly working class their dad starts a tree planting business where he's like paid by the government to reforest and Mm -hmm. it seems like it goes pretty well so then she spends a couple of years as a team leader throughout the summers helping with the tree planting and she takes a lot of pride in being like tomboyish and I don't think it's something she's ever like looked at deeply I do think nobody was watching her she did not want like male attention really. And so I think she went out of her way to be very like fit and athletic. And she really was against being a girly girl. And she took a lot of pride in being out there and being strong. I mean, she talks about tapping or something where she puts down stakes in like ice lakes for oil drilling. I don't know. She was always doing these like really physical arduous activities and taking pride in being as good as the boys. Yes. But after they come back from their year in Toronto, She says that there's a new side to her dad. He would tuck them in every single night. And 
he started coming up to her when she was sleeping and whispering awful things in her ear. He would just whisper, you're a bitch, you're nothing, you slut. And she would act asleep and just cry. Yeah, she says years later, her sister was like, I heard those. And she's like, I guess my brothers heard that too because they all slept in the same room. She goes, I honestly wondered if he could even be aware of the twisted things he said to me only the night before. Could he have been sleepwalking? The way he spoke to me, almost in someone else's voice, it seemed like he was out of control, in a trance. I know for sure that he wasn't drinking. And although I couldn't explain what might have provoked such behavior, I concluded that something went seriously wrong with him. I found myself actually feeling sorry for him. This went on until I left home at 17. And I think he really blamed her for being the source of strength in Sharon. But God, that is so intense. And the way she's like, I felt sorry for him. You felt so I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for you. You were dealing with a lot and I feel sad about it. Later in the book, she tells a story about being asleep on the couch in her house and feeling somebody cup her breast. And the only person who was home was her dad. Dad, I called out meekly. Dad, do you need something? Trying to act as if nothing had happened. What if he was standing behind me? I froze and I didn't want to move. A few more minutes passed. I tried his name one more time. Silence. He must have left. The living room floor had thick carpet, so he was able to tiptoe out as silently as he came in. I consigned the incident to the back of my mind just so that I could face him the next time we saw each other. I never said a word to him or to anyone else, figuring that no one would understand or believe that my father was capable of crossing such a sacred line with me. He, like, molested her and she casually says right before this she's like you know growing up my dad would always massage my legs after sports or a hard day with lotion but it was just like father-daughter time and he would ask about my day there's nothing creepy in it but then one time he did do this thing and she's like anyway I never thought about it again and I'm just like oh my god Shania I don't know just like it never stops the amount of abuse she has to endure just like from every angle all the time yeah so then her senior year of high school she joins a band <laughs> it's called Longshot and she's the lead singer they play in bars around town and then through performing with Longshot, she meets another band who performs at bars called Flirt, who is about to go out on this tour. And the night before they're going out on tour, their lead singer quits. So they call her and they're like, hey, do you want to come out on this tour with us? And she's like, you know what? I'm in the last couple of weeks of my senior year. She decides to take her exams early, get the hell out of there. She skips prom and she goes on her first tour. So then she moves to Toronto after this tour. She lives with a couple of people from back home and she's trying to become a singer. She really wants to be making it as a singer and she feels like a little ashamed to be having side jobs. She looks at it like all my friends are here for college. I'm doing kind of like a music college where I write my music all day. I perform bar gigs at night. She's doing her best to get her face out there, but she really can't support herself. So every summer she goes home and helps with her tree planting. And then she comes back in the winter. She also strikes a deal with that music teacher she had years ago that they used to drive 10 hours for lessons, Ian. If she cleans his house, she can use his house and his piano to make music. I spent hour upon hour alone with my guitar, tape recorder, records, and pen and paper. At 18, I didn't allow myself to worry too much about where this might take me. My sole focus was to get good. I would analyze how my singing and my songs measured up against my favorite artists. It was lonely and daunting, but not discouraging. She says, I may have ended up in the spotlight, but I actually aspired to be in the background where I felt safer and more reassured. You see, I don't enjoy music for the fact that it brought me attention. I enjoyed it because the music itself brought me pleasure. Yeah, she says a lot that it was always about the journey. It was always about getting better and making the music of being the artist and never about being successful. And that is something that I have to be like, I don't know, man. I don't think you become that successful if you don't want to be that successful. During this time, she gets this older boyfriend named Kim. He is... I think like much older than her and also professional musician, like a classically trained musician. And he is also an indigenous person and her parents hate him. Yeah, they hate him. It creates a huge rift between her and her family. She moves in with him and then her mom 
comes to see her in Toronto and asks to stay with her, she has left Jerry again and needs somewhere to be because Kim hates her. She's like, I don't know what to do. Like, you can't stay with us. Yeah. So she sets her up at like some cheap hotel and she calls Jerry and is like, please, can you send some stuff for her? Like, just send her a shirt. She has nothing. And he goes, no, like if she left me, she doesn't get anything. And he keeps accusing her of like leaving him for another man. And then she finds out that her mom did leave Jerry for a man from their tree planting crew who was supposed to run away with her and then ditched her. And she at this point is kind of like, okay, I can't fucking deal with your problems anymore. And she's like, go home, leave me out of it. And she's like, after that, I do think her mom's will to leave Jerry died because she was so humiliated by being stood up by that man. That was her last bout of courage. But I think Shania at this point was like, I can't, I can't raise you guys anymore. I can't take this on anymore. Yeah. I mean, she's like a 20 year old living in Toronto, trying to make it as a musician Who's like escaped so much trauma trauma. and abuse. And it's just like, please leave me out of it. So then in 1987, November 1st, they get a call. Kim sits her down and tells her that her parents have been in a crash and they've been killed. They died in a car accident together. And so they get home as quickly as possible back to Timmins where she's there with her sister I think Jill comes back for a second. It turns out one of her brothers was in the car as well, but survived. And then she has to stay to deal with all the odds and ends because Jill comes back for like two seconds and she just assumes the caretaker role. There's just no one else to handle it. She's put in charge. She has to handle dealing with her parents' entire estate, the aftermath of the accident. They didn't have a will, so it was a lot of work. And she says, if you are a parent, please make a will. Yeah. But with this accident, it was her dad's fault according to lawyers so she had to sign something that assumed guilt and then they were like all right brace yourself for more lawsuits probably it was just a mess she had a lot to deal with and she did not understand any of it it was like if you put me at 30 in front of someone who was like here is a mortgage document and my head would explode but she was 22 it's not like that, Ashley. I don't think that it's like that. Okay, it's not like that, but I'm just saying I understood her inability to process it, and then I'm just in awe of the fact that she did. Okay. <laughs> I, too, don't understand paperwork, but she managed, and I'm just overwhelmingly impressed. From the time I was little, I'd always worried that my father would someday kill my mother during one of their violent struggles, or that my mother would actually live out her contemplations about killing my father as the only way she felt she could escape their destructive relationship. So I couldn't help but be struck by the irony that they had died together in the end result of a car accident. It was as if, despite everything, they had been destined to be together for eternity. So together forever were the words we chose to engrave on their headstones. Dark. That, I mean, it doesn't get more dark than that. (laughs) So she takes custody of her younger brothers because they would have been separated. Yeah, she's like, either they would have gone to separate families and she's like, there wasn't really any family to take them in or they would have been put in the foster system. And she's like, well, I can't stay in Toronto so she moves back home they kind of rent out the house they like are just figuring it out and they do not know what to do and then luckily there was this woman Mary Bailey who was sort of like a guardian angel to her in the sense that she had been friends with Sharon Shania's mother because she herself was a singer and they had met on the circuit when Sharon was pushing Shania Mary was trying to make it herself and Mary became like a surrogate mother to her in this time of need and Mary one day pushed her and said you know what they're looking for a singer at this it's kind of like a review at a ski resort yeah and Shania's like, well, I would never get it. And what would I do with the kids? I can't raise kids and be in it. And Mary just is like, 
just don't stop thinking about it. Why don't we just go and audition? And she drives Shania the many hours to the ski resort to audition. She's hired on the spot. And she basically says to the guy, look, I can't work here unless I have enough money to pay rent for the three children. I'm now like the legal guardian of. And he makes a deal with her and says, "Okay, I'll pay you enough to do that. And she gets this job and she moves them all to this town of Huntsville. So they're all living in Huntsville. She gets this house that is essentially a shack. It doesn't have running water or locking doors. Yeah, it's just in the middle of the woods. And she's like, it's really like bush style. She's yeah. Like, it is out in the middle of nowhere. And at first she's living there by herself because I guess it's the school year. And so she's waiting for the summer for her, the kids to come live with her. Mm-hmm. And she's like, it's okay for us to live without running water because we didn't need heat yet. It was just the summer. But she tells this story about how she like lives out there by herself. It's so scary. And there's this neighbor Norman who's always like walking by and always drunk and always kind of hitting on her and she lives alone in this house with no lock so she's terrified so she finally gets the German shepherd that she names Roman as kind of her protector and Roman works Roman is like this great protector and that he's always barking at Norman and making Norman leave and then one day she hears Roman scream she goes outside Norman had accidentally hit Roman with his car and killed him and I just felt like Jesus fucking Christ will it never like Norman leave her alone That was like one of her big emotional breaks, having to bury Roman months after having to bury her parents. And she is just distraught about the amount of death and sadness and loss. Her brothers are living with her at the time. And so she has them dig a grave for Roman and she wants it done immediately. And they won't go out and dig the grave immediately. So she goes and gets all their hockey trophies, which is like the most Canadian thing I've ever heard, and starts breaking them on the front lawn until they go and dig the hole. And she's like, I shouldn't have acted that way. And you're just like, I like can't imagine more. Like you're allowed trauma. to have a mental breakdown. <laughs> like things were just so bad and they never stopped being so bad. When I read that line about Roman being killed, I was like, not even her dog. Just let her have her dog. She doesn't have a lock on her door. Let her have a dog. So she plays at this review for two years. I mean, as you guys can imagine, it's not easy there. Somebody finds out right away that she's getting paid more than everybody else. All the women are mean to her. The men are coming on to her. Everything's hard, but she is getting to sing every day and she's very happy and she is supporting her brothers and her sister. Yeah. Everyone's accusing her of having sex with someone to get more money. And she once again is like, I never, ever, ever fucking slept my way to the top. I think that's an accusation she hears often. So then Mary, who is now kind of her manager, gets in touch with this guy named Richard Frank, who is a music industry lawyer because the lawyers, entertainment lawyers are the ones who are well connected to everybody because they're the ones handling the contracts and who are in touch with everybody. So she gets this lawyer to come out and see the review to see her perform in Huntsville. And he loves what he sees. He gets her in touch with Mercury Records A&R and she ends up signing a record deal. They don't give her an advance. So she's still in Canada. She quits her job at the review. She moves back into the house that they had been renting out and she's like trying to get down to Nashville as much as she can. because She's like, you have to buy songs in person. I have no money. I can't live down there. So she's like traveling back and forth. Okay, So here's where like, I don't know, all of a sudden things just happen. And it's just crazy because at this point we really are on page 209. She's 25. She gets this record deal. And then things just start cooking. Yeah. And so at some point they give her a $20,000 advance. She's able to move to Nashville. And at this point her brothers are 16 and off on their own she gets this money she goes to nashville she takes her boyfriend it sounds like and everyone else they all scatter to the wind take care of themselves and so she starts making this record of everybody else's songs and she keeps pushing to make her own music and write her own music and they won't let her do it and they're like no no no, that's not how it works and she's like upset with the process but she also doesn't want 
to be difficult to work with. And she just keeps being like, this is the first step of many in your career. Just get to the next step and then you can start speaking up for yourself. That's the thing is she has this very holistic view of a long career. And she's like, I need to start proving myself here. And if things go well here, then they'll let me do the next thing. So you should only pick certain battles now because if you do well now, they'll let you do more later. She has a lot of foresight, honestly. She says, I viewed my situation as a good start and continue to write constantly in my apartment. I fully believe that if I were patient and preserved, I would get my chance to shine as a songwriter in the not too distant future. But I must say, most of the music pitched to me for that first album was formulaic cookie cutter stuff. So she ends up singing these songs. She's like, none of them are great. She doesn't love them, but you know, she's happy to be there. She puts out her album. They do one music video. And they make her pick a stage name. So this is when she goes yeah. from Eileen to Shania. Just because she heard the name Shania from someone and was like, that's cool. So she goes on this tour called the Triple Threat Tour, right? Triple Play. So three young artists from this label are put on a tour together. They're all making their debut. And then Toby Keith is one of the artists. And his album goes pretty big and it kind of becomes the Toby Keith tour and she's just along for the ride and she's there too interestingly enough she says she had not listened to country in years and she's like I started watching CMT all the time just to see what was going on she's like I didn't recognize any of the stuff she was not like a country artist lover she saw herself as singer songwriter a la Karen Carpenter but she just like got put wherever she got put and took it the song goes out I think it makes it like to number five on the country music hot 100 she does this music video the big controversy here is she wears a crop top and then it's deemed too sexy for cmt and so country music television she finally pushes back and they let it on but she's like who knew it would be such a big deal and then sean penn sees her video and wants to direct another shania twain video and they were like we weren't even gonna do a second video off this album but i guess if you want to make one you can yeah and i do think she never really talks about how beautiful she is and if she does, it's very much in the like, oh, I never cared about my looks. Oh, I was just like a tomboy. Oh, I never wore makeup. And I do feel like this is where there's some holes in the story. And I think one of the holes is she is like gorgeous. And so like even the crop top thing, like, I don't know. I just thought to put a crop top on. Why not? I don't know. For some reason, I wasn't allowed on CMT. It's like, OK, you kind of knew what you were doing. And then it's like, why did Sean Penn pick the number 55 country music girl to direct a video for a song that wasn't even going to be a single and it's like, oh, because you're like stunning. Yeah. You're gorgeous. You're like gorgeous. You're really pretty. <laughs> so then this album is being promoted. They're trying to kind of give it all the push it has. It's not a great album. She's the first to admit that it's not a great album. The year is about 1993. BT dubs. And then Mary, who is now her manager, fully calls again and is like, have you ever heard of this guy, Mutt Lang? He's a big fan of you. Yeah, he's a big fan. Who knows why? But they start communicating. He's a big time record producer. He has produced some of the biggest classic rock albums in history. So he has a really extensive catalog as a producer. He's never, I don't think, worked in country before. But he's a big fan of Shania. They start talking on the phone and they connect emotionally very quickly she says my interest in him musically developed over many weeks of these transcontinental phone calls by the time I finally discovered Mutt's iconic status in the music industry we had already bonded on our own terms without the influence of too much information I will say who did she think he was this is what doesn't add up here her manager's like oh this guy's a fan of yours and she's like okay I'll talk to him on the phone every night meanwhile he produced for ACDC at this point he produced Back in Black and albums for Def Leppard and I mean he does well 
But they would just talk all night. And she's like, so by the time I found out how successful he was, we already had a friendship on equal playing field. And I was just kind of like, so you were just calling anybody? <laughs> like, I don't under There's something weird. Yeah. And then she says that she didn't know what he looked like. So she imagined him like a pot-bellied old man. And then she finally meets him in real life. And he's much hotter than she initially expected. He was warmer and more approachable in person. I loved Mutt Lang at first sight. Not that I was in love with him, but I loved him with a familiarity I could not explain. The familiarity could be explained by dozens of late night phone calls. She immediately goes out to London where he lives and then to Spain where he has a house in Mallorca. And they just start writing music together. And this is after her first album. This is without letting her record label know. And he's like this big time producer. He's like, let's just start working on stuff together. So they start hammering out these songs. And she's like, my label had no idea that I basically had a whole nother album. So they finally start calling and they're like, hey, we do want to do a second album with you. Where the fuck are you? And she is so nervous to show up. She's working on these demos with Mutt. And finally, she's like, okay, I've not been ghosting. I've actually been working on something. I want to show it to you. She goes in and she's so afraid because she has a lot of anxiety about him being the rock guy and them not accepting that their up and coming country girl was making music that was like a little bit more outside the country box. So she sits down with the record executives finally with enough courage and tells them what she's working on. And they're like, that sounds cool. Then she goes on to be like, you know, they didn't want to put all this money behind me, though. And so Mutt so kindly was willing to eat the cost of what his normal fees would be to help me finish. And then she later is like, we were married within six months of seeing each other. So clearly they were husband and wife. Like, do you know what I mean? I feel like the timeline here gets a bit murky. And she kind of acts like they had this musical connection where he was like, what we're making here is so good. I'll just help you make it for free. But really, when you look at it, he was like, you're my wife now. I'll produce my wife's music for free. So they're making this album, The Woman and Me. And it is a smashing success. She was hoping to tie Reba McIntyre at 3 million sold. And I think she went on to sell like 16 or 30 million. I mean, it was like insane. Yeah, she won a bunch of awards. Grammys. And then she chose not to tour. Yeah. And so it's very different than it was today. So I think they were like living on singles for like two years. And she was busy as hell. She was doing promotional appearances for all these singles, but she was not touring. And she gives a day in the life. And it's very much like wake up at four. It's very chaotic. Every single thing was scheduled. She didn't have time to like eat or nap without it being built into her calendar. Do you know what she could have used for a little time saver? Freshly. Oh my God. Yeah. Just because she said she could never remember to eat and she didn't have the time and freshly is ready in like truly three minutes. Finding a meal that is fast, easy to make, delicious and not frozen is practically impossible. Luckily, nowadays we have freshly. Other meal deliveries need to be prepped and cooked, but freshly is ready to eat in three minutes. Every single week, you can choose from dozens of recipes to have delivered to your door, not frozen ready to eat with three minutes of heating. (laughs) I will say you and I are both on this page. Nobody really wants to spend hours and hours cooking after a busy day. Sometimes you get home, you are hungry that minute and you can make something terrible for you or you can have a freshly in your fridge waiting to be heated up and enjoyed a full well-rounded meal with vegetables, flavor, protein, A dream come true, if you will. I have to say, literally nothing on this planet is ready as fast as a Freshly. It is unbeatably quick. Freshly does delicious, fresh, healthy meals designed and created by chefs 
and they are nutrient-packed, delivered straight to your door, no cooking required. Stop stressing about dinner. Right now, Freshly is offering our listeners $125 off your first five orders when you go to Freshly.com slash worm. That's $125 off at Freshly.com slash worm. Oh, my God. You know what being full makes me? Horny as hell. (laughs) Am I horny after a big meal? No, but Dame products do make me horny because they work and they're waterproof and they're discreet and they're fully charged. Discover your inner pleasure with Dame's thoughtfully engineered toys. Like Claire said, the shipping is discreet, okay? You will order it for yourself. You forget what you ordered. A mysterious box arrives on your doorstep and you think... A sexy box. What could this possibly be? And you open it up and it's like a world of pleasure. A sexy, sexy world. (laughs) The Palm is a flexible vibrator that bends to your needs and contours to the shape of your body. I bet you're thinking from the bottom of your heart, when will my needs be bended to? The answer is now. (laughs) They got (laughs) bonked. It's an incredible way to de-stress at the end of a long day when you think, I'm God almighty, I don't want to talk to a single person. I just want to be happy. Get 10% off your first order at dameproducts.com when you use the promo code WORM. Worm. Can I tell you what gets me off? Shania Twain's rockin' bod. (laughs) Success. Who's successful? Shania Twain and the woman in her. The woman in her was just a knockout album. And it set her up to kind of be able to ask for anything for album number. Well, I guess technically album number three. So I just want to say, just to give you guys a timeline and a check in. In July 1995, Any Man of Mine, which was the second single off of Woman and Me, went number one on Billboard's country singles chart, spending 10 weeks up there. So then in July 22nd, 1995, The Woman and Me and Any Man of Mine both went number one. It had been two years since she started working with Mutt. And she becomes very famous very quickly. She says she starts to discover the flip side of fame. She is not really able to live her life the way she used to. She can't go to the mall with her sister. She says, I can't imagine being the president or the queen of England. All I can say is that everyone at the beginning of her public career is faced with the transition from not famous to famous, which for some celebrities can come seemingly overnight. It's an adjustment and gets very little sympathy or understanding from the press or public. Whatever that means to you, I'm just sharing my perspective based on my initial youthful experience of having a public profile. She has a really hard time with being recognized in public. And she also has a hard time expressing that it was hard. I think like more than being recognized, it was the feeling that she no longer had privacy and no longer could be self-sufficient because she took so much pride in being like, I don't need running water. I can sleep on a bus. That really had been her upbringing. And that's kind of one of the things we and Ashley were talking about is like missing from this book is, I mean, she really goes in two years time from living in a cabin with no water and being like the surrogate mother to very quickly she is She's making an album in Mallorca. Yeah. It's just kind of like, comes out of nowhere and she never really addresses going from so poor to so rich and I think something Ashley picked up on is true is that it's because the money part was not the success it was the marriage marrying much she married into a, a lot of money so she obviously earns a fuck ton of money on her own mm-hmm. that is no question about it she had talent she had drive she was gonna make it but I do think we saw this with Mariah Carey as well yes. she had a very similar situation where she was living in a literal crawl space and then suddenly she's living in a mansion upstate with Tony Romo Tommy Matola. <laughs> <laughs> anyway and she seems very hung up on people thinking she slept her way to the top 
she did marry someone more successful than her in the music industry. Who, I mean, was able to produce a kick-ass album. And I don't want to take any talent away from her, but there is the difference between her first album and her second album was she was able to work with somebody amazing who would listen to her ideas. And I do think right. going up the traditional path that she was set up on in the music industry, that is not necessarily something that would ever have been an opportunity for her. She basically married the upper hand. She was able to say, this is an established person who I can get to vouch for me. He was vouching for her because yeah. they were married. I don't think that that takes away from her talent and her ability. I will say, I feel like it's Mario Kart where there is a track that you're trying to make it around. And sometimes you hit these power-ups that just like shoot you a little bit further, a little bit faster. And I think that Mutt was a power-up. In this book, there does feel like the quick 180 of her entire life is so whiplashy. And that's the reason. And it, there is an irony that this entire book, she keeps being like, people think I slept my way to the top of the review. People think I slept with Sean Penn. People think I slept with this. I didn't sleep with anybody the way I made it to the top. And you're like, okay, but you did marry an extremely successful producer. Isn't wrong. It's just true. That's the missing link that's never like verbatim said out loud is yeah. I had this man in my corner. I also one thing I notice in a lot of books is people get very explicit about money when they don't have it because they're like it's important to understand the realities of money. And then as soon as they do have it, you don't really hear a single number ever again. She goes from talking about her $20,000 advance from the label that allows her to move to Nashville. That she lives next, off of for a year. And then she's buying five horses like truly within pages. And I do think part of it is like it did happen very quickly. I do think part of it is she like doesn't know how to process things. And I do also think that part of it is she was not necessarily happy. So she is living this incredibly fast-paced lifestyle. I think it is so much like the Mariah thing where suddenly she was whisked into this other world. She's working so hard. She doesn't belong to herself. She belongs to the machine and she feels a ton of responsibility, she says, to not ever take a break because if she takes a nap, the machine goes down. And so many people have put this effort into her. She talks about crying in the bathtub one night and says... I lay in the hot water for a long time until it began to cool and I started to cry. But to myself, Mutt was taking a break from the studio and I didn't want him to hear me. I didn't want anyone to hear my weak, pathetic breakdown. When the tears stopped, I went to bed alone. I mean, she can't open up to Mutt. She doesn't feel comfortable talking to anyone and she talks about feeling this distance with everyone she knew beforehand. So she doesn't feel close to her family anymore because suddenly there's this enormous space between she them. doesn't super get into it though she just she just says it she's like there is a space between us she sort of suggests it's because just logistically she's like I invited everyone to my shows along the tour but people can't just uproot their lives and come visit me on tour and she does say I remember speaking to Luke who worked for her label on the phone from a Las Vegas hotel room it was a large suite and had huge floor-to-ceiling windows that spanned in the width of the living room although it's hard for me to imagine my thought process in the moment back then this is what I was experiencing the living room was spacious and as I was talking to Luke listening with one half of my brain and contemplating with the other it occurred to me that all I had to do was move the coffee table out of the way and I'd have a good clear run at the window with enough force to actually break through and jump and then of course this is so Shania it wasn't anything Luke was saying that was that brought this on of course as Luke was always very compassionate and sensitive to me personally I may not have even told Luke that I was even more than tired and could use rest but I wouldn't have expressed the true depth of my desperation that night. I was too strong or maybe weak, depending on how you look at it, to burden anyone with my pain. It would have been more painful to do that than to jump through the window in my mind. I was experiencing amazing success, and my thinking was that I didn't have the right to complain about it. And she keeps being like, I mean, I was never suicidal or anything. And then she'll be like, but I did have these thoughts of jumping out the window. And you're like, okay, what do you think was going to happen at the bottom of the window? So then they start working on the next album, Come On Over. So she and Mutt are writing separately, and then they would meet back up and put a song together because their lives are both so busy. He's working on other projects. She's doing still like a media blitz for the first album. 
there living in upstate New York so that it's kind of close to Canada but it is she's like I'm gone three to four months at a time and I do think that that's why these chapters also feel so weird is because I guess and they were all career focused and in some ways like personally empty and it spans 12 years right so from the minute she meets Mutt until the minute she kind of takes time off to be with her son she's just like on the circuit which is to read very different than being like we just spent 200 pages on the first 20 years and now she's like the next 12 years just a lot of talk shows <laughs> so let me read you some of the singles off come on over because this album to this day is one of the biggest of all time you're still the one which is one that has gone down in history is like one of the greatest love songs of all time from this mm. moment on that don't impress me much man i feel like a woman You've Got Away, Come On Over, Rock This Country. And so each of these singles was released like four to six months apart, but it required an entire new media blitz. And then she's doing an international mega tour. So yeah, so she didn't do a tour after her second album because her feeling was, and me and Ashley wonder if this really came from her or from Mutt because it is smart thinking. She was like, I hated my first album. I don't have enough songs to do a full tour. I don't want to be on there stretching for 90 minutes. She says she'd see a new artist who can do a tour, get up there and just kind of do cover songs and then do their big hit as the encore to like remind everyone why they were there. And she says it was really a slog and you don't want to do that. And I was like, we hate a slog. And she's like, also, that's why people have their sophomore albums because you have like a lifetime to write your first one. And then you have to do this whole tour, come back and write a new album in three months. And she's like, so I wanted more time to write a second album. Of course, it doesn't seem like she had a ton of time to write the second album. She said it was written in bits and pieces here and there. Like one song was written at a soccer game during halftime. She didn't have time off, but she just wasn't so on the road as she would have been had she been touring. But again, she was like not happy. She says, I was exhausted. And although I was thrilled by this success, I feared it would never end. The work, the travel, the loneliness. I feel a huge sense of accomplishment now, but at the time I was too tired to appreciate it. Every time I'd get news that it just kept selling, the demand for more singles continues. I wanted to collapse at the thought of normalcy, rest, recharge. It was an incredibly bittersweet experience to be enjoying the success and feeling a pang of almost resentment toward it. I considered myself selfish, feeling the contradiction of emotions, but I was confused what to feel. I didn't know whether to be happy or sad. I was losing touch with what I wanted. There was no peace. Come on over comes out is an enormous success. And she does her first arena tour across the whole world. She was obsessed with preparing for this tour because this was the age of auto-tune and people kind of overproducing their records. And I guess people were really accusing her of not being able to sing because she hadn't toured the first album. So she found it really important to be able to like perform her album at a full sprint. She was like, we were jumping up and down practicing. So they're on this tour. It is a huge tour. So this is where she starts throwing things in. She has a huge tour bus. Her dog, they have a separate trailer for her favorite horse. (laughs) The way that that's so casually put in there. And I'm like, truly pages ago, you did not have running water. When did you get a horse bus? (laughs) And she loves the fans. She's so happy. They do overseas tours. So she and Mutt have been looking for a place to call home permanently. And they decide on Switzerland. Yeah, she's about 35 at this point, and it's been like a sprint for years, for seven straight years, she says, or eight since she was 27 and met Mutt. It's been like nonstop go. I find it very interesting that she moved there because like the upstate New York thing made sense to me because I'm like, okay, that's still close to your family. But like to move to Switzerland, you're kind of saying, okay, Mutt is my family now. So on this tour, she becomes really close with the tour family. And so as soon as the tour ends and she goes to settle into her house in Switzerland, she feels very alienated from them because now, you know, she's spent the last year and a half constantly surrounded by dozens of people and now it's just like her and mutt in this house and 
this is when they decided to have a family. She had, well, not they. He had not really wanted kids. He wasn't like adamantly against it, but he was like, that's not really something I'm into. And she had been kind of like, I don't know. I, I think I might. We'll see. And then after the come on over tour, finally, she's back in Switzerland and she's like, I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> So she gets pregnant and... And he's on board, she says. And she doesn't say anything bad about Mutt. I do want to spoil alert. They are going to get divorced eventually. And this is written post-divorce. So it's very telling the way that she doesn't say anything damning about him. And I think you have to kind of read between the lines. When she's finishing her European tour, Dancer, her favorite horse, is no longer on tour. Dancer has retired to Switzerland, gets kicked, and the knee shatters. And so they put dancer down and she is like not part of this process at all Mutt just calls her and is like oh dancer broke his leg and is dead now and it's so funny she's like the veterinarian really should have called me and told me that they were thinking about putting down dancer and it is like well maybe your husband should have so she moves to switzerland straight after the tour she doesn't know anybody there and she also doesn't really speak any of the languages so the only person she's kind of friends with is mutt's assistant marie ann who's very cold to her but is like the only woman who speaks english and they don't bond until shania gets pregnant and also, she says, because I respected Mutt's wishes to keep our lives very private, even during my pregnancy. So I saw my family very rarely during that time and into the first weeks after my delivery. I mean, that's not what private means. I regret that neither of my sisters were there for Asia's birth. Marie Ann was my only companion throughout this very special period of my so life. So Marie Ann is also pregnant, and this is what bonds them. They initially were just like kind of both existing in the same place. And then when they're both pregnant at the same time, they have a lot to talk about. They become closer. That's not what private means. That doesn't mean no family. So after the baby is born, she goes right back to work. And she's like, I found that to be very old school. The way a woman would just take right back to the field with her newborn on her back. Her birth is another story that like is really sad to me about what she doesn't give herself grace for. She has so much grace for every single person in her life who has treated her like absolute shit. And she's talking about being in pain, arriving at the hospital. And she's like, I had to walk into the hospital hunched over. Where was my strength, my ability to tolerate pain and suck up my desire to break under pressure? I learned an important lesson. A body about to give birth doesn't care. You don't have to stand up straight and walk proud into the hospital while you're in active labor. So they have the baby. It's 2001. They put out this album called Up that they do three different versions. I didn't really understand what was happening here. Yeah, they do like a country version, a dance pop version, and a rock version. In 2003, 2004, she starts touring Up. She's a jaunt around the world. She says this is more fun because she gets to bring Asia, her son, Mutt, and Tim. Tim is her dog. Carrie, her sister, accompanied them on and off as well as her son, Dylan, and husband, Jeff. So I think at this point, she finally has enough control in her life that she's like, okay, the road is so lonely. I'm going to have the best of both worlds. I'm bringing my family with me. I'm going to make this enjoyable. I will say it's not clear to me why Mutt wasn't on the other tour. I think he just like prioritized other jobs over husbandship she tours it's 2004 at this point i mean she's obviously rich as hell i mean this lady is so rich they have their house in switzerland they have a house in new zealand they have a house and after the up tour concludes she goes back home to switzerland and is like you know what i'm taking time off music i want to be with my family i deserve to enjoy the fruits of my labors i'm gonna get really into house building <laughs> so she gets home to switzerland it's about to be christmas time and she's noticing that mutt is like very distant and she doesn't know what to do and she can't fix it he's barely even acknowledging her when they go to New Zealand, she confides in her friend Marie Ann. And Marie Ann is like, weird. Good luck with that. Yeah. But she says, Shania goes, I am somebody who never talks about my husband to anybody. This was like a huge opening up for me to even admit that we had any problems. She also mentions that her self-esteem is particularly low at this point, And it probably is a result of her husband showing no interest in her. 
And she asks Marie Anne, do you think he's having an affair? And Marie Anne is like, you shut the fuck up, you dumb bitch. He would never. They go to New Zealand and he leaves and she's emailing Marie Anne like, it's only getting worse. She's bought all these self-help books to try to fix herself. She gives us a list of the books she bought and I'm like, I don't think these helped. I don't know that we need the list. (laughs) And she's like, if you run into him in Switzerland, can you let me know if anything's going on because you're his assistant? So like, I'm sure you'll see him. And Marie's like, I'm busy. Yeah. You chill. Marie's like, it's fine. It's no big deal. Yeah, he leaves twice during this New Zealand trip. So finally she goes back home. She can't figure out what's going on. And then what should happen? Fred, Marie Ann's husband, Frederick, comes over and says, I need to tell you something. They've been having an affair the whole time. Her frickin' friend. Best friend. Her husband's assistant. She loves the way Fred refused to be a part of the lie any longer and told her the truth. This is at the end of March 2008. She finds out it was so painful, the worst shock of her life since her parents' death 20 years earlier. And then she goes, okay, so maybe they made a mistake. My husband and my friend will come to their senses and realize that I was ready to forgive, forget, and make things right, move on, and get on with our lives. She says, over 14 years together, Mutt and I both had our share of give and take. There was an equal exchange between us, and when the energy of that exchange died, so did the relationship. We weren't victims of each other, only victims of the one taking advantage of our vulnerable state as a couple and a family. So she views them as a couple, as a victim of Marie Anne's calculated efforts of sabotage. Yeah, and she keeps thinking that it can be fixed. At first, she's like, we can stay friends. We can stay married. You made a mistake. And then she's like, we were in a bad spot. And Marie Anne took advantage of us. And she's like, I can't believe my friend would stab me in the back like that. And she's like, she's making you look like a fool. Like, Marie Anne, please don't do this to us. Why did you seduce him? Marie Anne, please don't make us look stupid. And it's just like, okay, this is an adult man who like chose to leave you for the mistress. He chose the mistress. She talks about running into Marie Anne because they have children who are the same age at the same school. I was drained of all my energy as the facade I tried to keep up for my child's sake took everything I had. She was going through her daily routine, however, while in a new exciting romance with a man who had decided to put her first above his wife and family. Love is energizing and new love is especially blissful and makes you feel invincible. Yeah, she says that the first time they ran into each other, she was like dreading. And when it happened, Marie Anne like walked by and kind of like negged her. She claims that Marie Anne not only took her husband, but kept being like mean to her in public. She had nothing left to fear and I'd lost. Every time she kicked me when I was down, she made sure my husband wasn't looking. And when I tried to explain to him what he couldn't see, he refused to listen and didn't want to know. I felt as if I were trapped in some kind of childish game with my sadistic opponent standing just far enough away that I couldn't reach her. All the while sticking out her tongue at me. It I was kind degrading. I don't understand this part. You're saying that the woman that was your good friend that had an affair with your husband is not respectful of you. And you keep thinking like if your husband finds out about this, he'll leave her and come back. Yeah. Like, I her fucking your husband was disrespectful. Like and him fucking her back. That was disrespectful. And then when he left you for her, when you found out and he said, disrespectful. you know Disrespectful. This idea that she has that you're going to like see and be like, oh, the real her is not a good person. They're not good people. They did a bad thing to they you. They did a bad thing to you. They were awful to you. I don't understand how she was being like, they just don't understand. She says, I was disgusted that another woman's lust for a lifestyle upgrade was worth the devastation of my family. She was pitiless and I was a pitiful mess of woe is me. Yes, that is true. She didn't care for you. She didn't care about you. She wasn't your friend. She fucked your husband and married him. So, I mean, I do think it's hard for her to really turn on Mutt because he is the father of her child and like the father of her career, kind of. Yeah. And also she has like a fucked up relationship with She has a really fucked up relationship with everyone ever. And it is really hard to read her really just 
sad about it and she doesn't let herself get mad about it for the most part. And she says that even her family, she goes back to Canada to like cry about it and her family was like, stop saying your friend and your husband. Like he is not the love of your life and she is not your good friend. And she blames herself in these ways that I am just so sad about. She says, I do think it's wise to remain in close communication with your partner in every way your relationship has meaning to you. Parenting, romance, friendships. Gaps allow devious outsiders to come in and take advantage of space between you. And they see it as an opportunity to fill in the missing parts. Your lack of attention to every single detail of your relationship is not the reason Marie Anne stole him. His deception did not start because you were deceived. The cause and effect here is not the mistake. She's like, we were distant and she was able to come in and exploit that. It's like, no, you were distant because he was having an affair. And that's not your fault. (laughs) We talked about this. We assume he was having a lot of affairs. Yeah. She said like the reason she was willing to finally open up about it is because she's like, I want to like show other women my story so they don't feel so alone in theirs. So six months later, September 2009, she goes back to Switzerland from Canada so that Asia can go back to school. And her and Fred had like been bonding this whole time. This is Marie Ann's ex-husband who was also friends with Shania's ex-husband, Mutt. They call themselves like the jilted lovers. They're the ones who've been left. And he's really kind of the only person who's helpful to her, I think. He sends her emails that really help her get through it. And whenever she's feeling alone, her sisters are like, don't forget, Fred knows what you're going through. He's going through it too. Yeah, I think it really helped to have that situation because I think a lot of times when you go through something awful and someone tries to help you with stupid platitudes, you're like, you have no idea what the fuck I'm going through. And Fred did know exactly what she was going through. So she's like, I don't know that I can ever open myself ever again. I'm never going to love. I'm never going to have a friend. She doesn't think she can ever survive it. By that December, her and Fred have fallen in love (laughs) and gotten married in January. No, they get married three years later. Okay. Or two years later. They get married in 2011. This is 2009. So, but that December, he like takes her on a helicopter ride up to an iceberg where he like professes his love on a watch. And she's like, he's so romantic. She goes through pages and pages of all the romantic things. And now she's so happy and she's waking up in a dream and they're so lucky and he's such a great guy. They're still married to this day. So she's like happier than ever. And then it ends with this like really bizarre chapter on bodies and looks where she just like goes off the rails. I just say she's like having a mental breakdown about how chubby she is and how her body isn't as good as it used to be. And she's so sad that her best body was for her ex-husband. And Fred is always like, I love you, even if you don't lose the weight. And it's like I've. She was a size two. I mean, it's so insane. And then she talks about like how she would be so humiliated if she ever had cellulite and now she has cellulite and she's just like, I guess I have to just love myself. And then, I mean, it really is so unhinged, but it's very interesting because in the rest of the book, she never, ever acknowledges how pretty she is. The only time her looks come up is to put herself down. She puts herself down a lot. Or to talk about how like someone called her ugly and she's like, I know I'm ugly. I'm just trying to take a photo. I'm so sorry. I have to have a photo for my, like she never talks about being attractive. And then all of a sudden she's like, I've lost it all. I have no value. She's always talking about, she's like, you know, you wouldn't believe without makeup on, I look like the most plain Jane, boring bitch you've ever seen in your life. She loved going to Bo Derek's husband as a photographer because he was honest. Vicious. And he would be like, you're so ugly. I want to cut your nose off with a knife. He'd be like, your nose is just ruining all my photos. I don't know what to do about it. And she was always like, I liked it because, you know, standing next to Bo Derek, I was an absolute haggard troll. And so I'm, I'm happy that he told me the truth. It's very bizarre. I mean, it's like this whole chapter that you're just like, why are you saying this? <laughs> I will say she says through the divorce process, she starts writing this book and she just sits down every day and is writing like tens of thousands of words. 
and that's what was the kernel that turned into this book. And I was like, okay, that does make sense. That does make sense. This book is like just like a regurgitation of you at your most emotional. There is not a lot of order here. (laughs) There's not a lot of order. There's not a lot of through line. I honestly think a rewrite wouldn't be the worst idea. I would love for her. Like, I think if a ghostwriter sat down with this as source material and, and then did like one other interview. Yeah. And like got us a through line in 290 pages. It would be one of the most interesting books of all time. One of the most interesting of all time. I am in awe of Shania Twain's ability to come at everybody who hurts her with like so much compassion, her talent, her drive to come from what she's come from. I mean, not even the celebrity, the way that she was able at 22 years old to take on her parents' estate and raise three kids. I mean, just like everything she's done in her life has taken so much courage and commitment and strength and I'm in awe of her. I wish this was a better book. I wish she had done herself some service. I mean, the way that she wraps it up, because clearly they were like, this needs a wrap up, is this story of success does, however, belong to anyone willing to earn it and who has the talent and ability to be there. All capable people have the right to access the opportunity of success. And she talks about, you know, as you rise up the ranks, the trick is to hold your head above the clouds to keep a cool mind and a clear vision so you don't lose sight of your goals. I mean, that all is kind of nothing. I mean, like, what is she even saying here? Yeah. I mean, I think she had to write this book for herself. I think she had to write it for herself. And then I think they made her kind of put a through line to it. And I'm just like, this should have been like the start of a therapy journey that eventually became a really incredible book. (laughs) Yes. Okay. We love you guys so much. Yeah, so much. This week on the Patreon, we will be chatting about stuff. (laughs) That's true. Oh, we'll be chatting. We'll be in L.A. Yeah. So we'll be talking about L.A. stuff. See you there. (laughs) And thank you so much to our five-star reviewing Wormies. Ashley. More like Ashley because this review fucking slays. Thank you, Party Never. Listen, for a review like this, we party sometimes. Thank you, Hannah2987153. I adore you 298-700-153 times that. Lolo Step, my favorite dance. I appreciate you. Sweaty Girly 99. Hell yeah, girl. Let it flow. Batty12355. Stay friggin' bad. Jor242424. Let me hear you roar. Thank you, Banana in Progress. We support you all the way from now until you're ripe as shit. Penelope Sunshine, you are a beautiful bright angel. Thank you, Ready for It by Taylor Swift. I am ready for it. Thank you, Lauren KK0123. When people respond, KK to a message they mean it with love <laughs> thank you hola julieta hola back at ya thank you l bar cry zero 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 you can cry all you need over here thank you kdk kissy face kissy face right back at ya um and i think that that's all this week i love you guys so much and i can't wait to see you next time